Hi, everybody. This is Tony Kahn, the producer and director of Morning Stories from WGBH in Boston. When I was five, I was shunned by just about all of our neighbors because my father's politics were unpopular. And so we left the country for Mexico, where I was shunned by my neighbors because the color of my skin was different. When we got back to the States five years later... I was shunned by my new neighbors because everything about me was different. My way of dressing, my way of talking. Communist, gringo, wetback. The insults were always different, but they felt the same to me. They were saying I was an outsider and I did not belong. It took a little more maturing before I realized that most of the hate that I felt coming at me wasn't really from who I was, but from the fear that if anyone was seen with me being nice to me, well, he might be called an outsider, too. Today's morning story is from a conversation we had recently with a man named Randall Norris, who sent us an email on Martin Luther King Day. His white neighbors turned against him all his life, and he's white. We call today's morning story a reasonably decent human being. My uh, uh, family was part of the great hillbilly diaspora, you know, that went from East Tennessee and Kentucky and West Virginia north during the, the 50s to uh, Ohio and Michigan and Indiana, and, and many of them were treated like dirt in the north. In uh, Ohio, you know, the folks from Kentucky were called ridge runners and, and briar hoppers, and I was always condemned for being a hillbilly, and then when I went home to Tennessee, I was condemned for being a Yankee. <laughs> In Ohio, if you got down and out, there was no shame in having to uh, apply for food stamps uh, in uh, East Tennessee. I was sitting there staring at a, a can of mushroom soup one night for supper, and I asked Mom, I said, well, why don't you just go to the welfare and apply for some aid? She said, son, before we do that, you'll starve to death. <laughs> in the North, they don't care how high you rise as long as you don't live too near. In the South, they don't care how, how near you are. They just don't want you to rise too high. And and uh, I've told several uh, black friends that, and they said that's exactly the way it is. The end result is the same. I was really mixed up, and it was a very difficult time, and, and a lot of these things you know, ended up for me uh, playing themselves out at a personal level. I stayed in trouble. Given what you've gone through, what do you think it really takes to get somebody to welcome a stranger? Uh, oh, that's an interesting question. I was traveling around the country, and I used to go by bus a lot. And I got on a bus at Memphis, and I got on one night, and and uh, the bus was full. And only two white people on the bus were, were the driver who was at the front, and I was in the back. And everybody else was black, and they all turned around and looked at me. I'm scared. Yeah, yeah. In my little East Tennessee town, there were no blacks. And I have never felt such a feeling of being alone and different and threatened. And I realized, what must a black person feel like when they're surrounded by white people every day? And uh, I looked at him and I said, if anybody on this bus starts a race ride, it is not going to be me. And everybody just died laughing. And we had a you know, guy broke out his radio and we had a great trip. You told us a story mm -hmm. uh, about Martin Luther King. Yeah. I've had a friend for 35 or 40 years. We were, were talking about Martin Luther King one day, and he was talking about what a powerful speaker he was. And he said, you know, when I was a sophomore in high school, he came to Clarksdale, Mississippi, and he was going to give a speech. Well, 
me and some of my buddies decided that we would go over there and disrupt the crowd. So they took their slingshots, uh, which were made with surgical rubber, which is, you know, a deadly instrument, and uh, with the ball bearings, and they were going to go on a parallel street and then shoot the ball bearings up into the crowd and disrupt the crowd. Well, as chance would have it, when they got there, uh, he had already started speaking, so they hid their truck in one alley and went and sat down on a Whittler's bench in a back alley. And as they were sitting there getting ready to do what they'd come there to do, they started listening to it. And the more they listened, the less enthusiastic they became about their mission. And they sat there, and he talked, and they listened, and he talked, and they listened. And Pat, uh, this friend of mine, uh, said uh, we, we laid down our, our ball bearings and our uh, slingshots, got up and, and got in the truck and left. I don't know how I felt, but I know we didn't shoot any ball bearings that day. Martin Luther King apparently didn't just have the ability to move 100,000 or 10,000 or, or, or even a 500 in a church. He had the ability to touch the hearts of three white teenage boys in, in Clarksdale, Mississippi, and, and get them to change their behavior. Not so much in what he said, but how he said it. All of us have heard the same scripture, but you'd never heard it the way he quoted it. <laughs> His ability to take common everyday phrases and events and make them a story that's important. That's what people respond to, just because it's the truth. I think you told two stories about racial harmony, Randall. The story of you in the bus, where you said to all those black people, I trust you to take care of me. <laughs> yeah, and, that's what I was doing. And the, the story of Martin Luther King, where a black person was able to say to some white people, you're a lot better than you think. That's it. I said, yes, you're right, exactly. You give them their, their dignity. That's the one thing that a human being has, that when you take it away from them, then they're less than a human being. One last question for you, Randall. Uh-huh. Have you become the person you wanted to be? <laughs> uh, to a large degree, yes. My personal history is one of uh, physical abuse and uh, surviving Vietnam and, and uh, alcohol and drug abuse. I've been sober for 20 years. And, and I've seen a lot, and, and I've had to face a lot. And there's a lot of it that I wish I hadn't had to live through, but it's made me the kind of person that I am today, and I'm pretty happy with who I am today. You know, a reasonably decent human being. Pleasure talking to you, Randall. Well, great. I'm glad you, you called, and, and you have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye-bye. Randall Norris with uh, today's morning story, a reasonably decent human being. And we're here in the studio with uh, Gary Mott. Every time I listen to that conversation, I just get more out of it. You know, I realize that you can't treat another person with dignity unless you feel you're being treated with dignity. And yeah. that, that's a real rare transaction, unfortunately, in most of the world today. My experience on the school bus mm. back when in I... In Chicago. In Chicago, right? right. The only white face right. and a sea of black faces. And it took some time to gain the trust of my kids. You mm -hmm. know, They're seeing me behave, and I think I, I earned a degree of respect. Yeah. And they, in turn, opened up more to me, talked to me about things. Yeah. How do we let each other know what it's like to be the other guy? It, it usually does come through stories. Uh, Randall uh, said, you know, he comes from a storytelling culture. And he's a great storyteller He's a great himself. storyteller. Because wow. he, he just gets at that human core, you know, like... 
he describes a human being behaving like a human being. And you get so many human beings on your side, you know, when you do that. Listen, we have been asking people to make contributions to the show. No long spiel about this. But we made another call to one of our contributors the other day. Just want to play a little bit of that conversation. Her name is Danae. This is Danae. Danae, hi. It's Tony Khan. How are you? Good. How are you? You told us in, in your letter that you are a volunteer puppy raiser. Correct. How can you just raise a puppy and then... Give it away. Give it away. You can't possibly love your pet as much as I love this puppy that I've just raised for 15 months. Right. What they're doing is so important. They're going to change somebody's life. If you become disabled or are born disabled, it's like you've been cut out of the tree of life. And then when you get a service dog, people now look at you and it's like you've been grafted back in. And I just love that. It's like they're not looking at the chair. They're not looking at the disfigurement or something. They have something to talk about. And they're no longer the kid with a disability. They're the kid with a cool dog. When I was young, my dad was very sick. And members of my church helped take care of my family. And... This is one way that I look at I help return that service. Is there a story that you've heard recently about one of your uh, graduates? About a year and a half ago, um, one of the little girls has pretty frequent seizures. and They were in the swimming pool. So it was her and my dog, Winda, and her mother. And the dog that I had raised was closer to her than the mother, and the little girl had a seizure. And... The dog got to her first and put her head up under her shoulder, up and like the armpit, and kept her head above water hmm. until her mom got there. I didn't teach her to do that. You didn't <laughs> teach her to do that? She just somehow instinctively sensed the need. Do you have a kind of goodbye ceremony? You do have to groom them before their final turn-in. It's the bath and the ears and the nails, and mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but that's the hardest for me. We do have a ceremony. It's called the matriculation. What's that like? We have the normal cape that we put on the dogs that help us with our public access, mm-hmm. that identifies what it is that they do. And for the matriculation ceremony, they get a special cape, and they have this um, little medallion that they're wearing. Hmm. and. The dogs are prancing up on stage, and we walk across the stage. They call your name, and they tell who you are, what the dog's name is, and where you're from. That is not as hard for me because you're also, at the same time— You're, you're sharing it with a lot of other people. You're sharing it with a lot of other people. And and, but, you're, and you're seeing people who are going to be made happy by Right. You're, you're doing, you have yeah. also watched the other people that are graduating with their service dogs— <laughs> Have you ever had anyone come up to you and say, every time I see you, you've got a new dog, what are you doing with them? (laughs) It's funny, the people who remember the dog's name and not my name, (laughs) or that talk to the dog and not me. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Can I tell you a story about the dog I I had for 12 years? It was a golden retriever. Oh, the best. Uh, Yeah. Every day I would walk from my apartment near Central Square to Harvard Square, you know, get some exercise, go to the bank, whatever. And this stranger goes by and says, hi, Ben, (laughs) my dog's name. And Ben starts wagging his tail like crazy. And I I didn't know this guy. I said, excuse me, but uh, 
you seem to know my dog. Have we met? He says, you know, you go to Harvard Square every day. Said, yeah, by the bank. Yeah. He said, well, I own the cookie store right next to the bank. And Ben comes in and I give him a couple of cookies. <laughs> Everything. I said, how long has this been going on? He said about, oh, about six, eight months. <laughs> yeah, he was sneaking cookies on the side. <laughs> but they're terrible flirts. Yeah, they are. One last question for you, Danae. What did we do right or what could we do right about fundraising? You want to make sure that you know we're doing it in a way that's right for everybody. I guess guilt always works well for me. (laughs) You know, I wouldn't steal cable or anything, and this is a product or a service, however you want to look at it. And if it's something you're going to use, then it's something you need to pay for. It costs you something to produce, and you need people to help. I guess that's just the way I look at it. I have very much enjoyed morning stories. It's almost like a roulette wheel of emotions. You never know if it's going to make you feel a little bit nostalgic or happy or, you know, it's just, that's one of the neat things about it. Thanks. It's great talking to you and I hope we'll talk again. Great. Thank you very much. Take care, Danae. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Danae from Oklahoma. So unless you're also stealing cable, (laughs) you might want to consider a contribution to us. And you can do so at our website, wgbh.org slash morning stories. And Tony, we got some video on YouTube. What would a Morning Stories video be like? Well, we sort of played around with the camera before they took it away from us, and uh, so we've, we've done some of these, and we'd love to have you check them out. We also have a special relationship we want to tell you about, as we do every week, and that's with Ipswich, a leader in file transfer software, and our sponsor, we're proud to say, since pretty much the beginning of this podcast, IPSWITCH.com. Morning Stories at WGBH.org. Please, get in touch. And we'll see you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.